did I not do this? Okay, we're good. Um, hello, everybody. Hello. I had actually planned to have a slightly gimmicky opening, which was going to just be standing up here for a long time, making all of you wait to kind of get us in the mindset of like how we really feel about waiting. <laughs> um, but doesn't really seem fitting, Slash, after that warm welcome. Slash, everyone would be like, get that woman's husband up there. <laughs> My husband preaches too, by the way. Um, but given that I'm an educator by trade, instead what I would love to, yeah, school, school, school. Um, what I would love for you to do is something we call a turn and talk where you turn and talk to your partner and you tell them some of your honest feelings about waiting. And I will know that you are done when you raise your hand and look at me. <laughs> All right, go, turn and talk. All right, so what are some of our honest, if we could summarize them in one word, what are some of our honest feelings about waiting? Just say them out so that we can all hear them. Hate it. Impatient. Angst. That's a good word. Fraught. Distraught. Thank you. Fraught and distraught. Um, when I was thinking to myself about some things that I really think about how I feel when I'm waiting, a lot of it, if I'm honest, it can start with anxiety where I'm just a little bit antsy, hoping that something's gonna happen. Um, it turns from that into apathy and like passivity where I'm like, meh, whatever's gonna happen's gonna happen, right? I'm not really present in this. I can start to feel like a victim. And I find myself getting scared and that, and angry, actually. Um, the anger usually comes from like, I'm actually scared that you're wasting my time. <laughs> um, but those are a lot of things that I think come up with us for waiting. So um, I've actually been thinking about this sermon, funnily enough, with the theme of waiting, since May 13th of this year. <laughs> Um, and that's when Ryan preached a really great word from Matthew 24. And let's, I, I felt like it was a good scripture where we could really dig in deep as far as like, what does God say about his goodness through this passage? So let's read that passage in Matthew 24, verses 45 through 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master, him, master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of this servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
See why I thought that this was like the perfect scripture for us to talk about God's goodness? Yay. <laughs> but really though, a question I kept asking myself when I was looking more deeply into this scripture is this question of why does God delay? Okay, what, is, why, what purpose is this? Because you read a lot of parables where Jesus talks about um, the delay of the master and usually what results is pretty negative consequences for the people. Um, and it's actually relatively easy to find some answers as far as why the master delays, and it's usually coming straight from James 1 where people say, oh, it's trials which produce perseverance and long-suffering, and that's all good fruit. Um, often, too, and often in other books, you'll hear people talk about God delays our answers to prayers to produce greater maturity and fruitfulness in us. Um... So again, since May, I've been thinking about this. And every morning, my commute, I go through a certain part of Oakland where I think maybe certain people don't always go through. And I oftentimes will see luxury cars with bumper stickers letting me know that the person in that luxury car is a parent at another affluent school. I will see that car pull over to where I will oftentimes see a young lady who is half naked in 50 degree weather, gets into his car, and we know what's happening, right? And I always want to be like, I see you, I see you, I see you beating her. I see you, you have so much power and influence and you are here exploiting somebody. And I'll tell you that this explanation does not feel like enough for me. When I'm in those moments, I'm like, I, that's really nice that the Lord wants to produce fruitfulness maybe in me or in her. It just doesn't feel like that's the goodness of God. And I think that all of us experience some, that in some form or another, where we're watching something and we're waiting, and something about our culture is really into like fast answers and results. So we're like, well, you know, that produces perseverance. But I think if we're really honest and if we really reflect on what we shared with each other about waiting, I don't know that we really believe that, and I don't know that that's the whole story. So. It's a good time to talk about this because it's Advent. Raise your hand if you know about Advent. We are not exactly the most uh, liturgically centered church, but I love the liturgical calendar myself only because it gives me a different way to think about the changing seasons instead of Safeway telling me it's Halloween in like August or like <laughs> Christmas in November. So I love the liturgical calendar. So if you're not familiar, I have a beautiful picture of an advent wreath where you can um, visualize, and you're like, oh, I've seen that before. But traditionally, and there's a lot of different traditions that observe advent, and what it looks like is uh, every Sunday of the month of December, you um, basically have some time where you're reflecting on the coming of Christ. And basically, um, adventus, the original term, means coming or arrival. And every Sunday, you celebrate a different theme. It lo usually looks like hope, joy, faith, all of these different things. And 
you have three purple candles, and that's supposed to represent the royalty of Christ, and then you have one rose candle for the third Sunday, and that's for Gaudete Sunday, which is today. And traditionally, the priests will dress in rose-colored garments. This was the closest I could get. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't have a whole wardrobe full of rose-colored garments. But um, what I think is really interesting is the early church, you know, there's a lot of syncretism, right, where they're overlapping with different pagan traditions. We have some evergreens around us borrowed from pagan traditions. But what I think is really cool is that another explanation is that um, the early church chose to start celebrating uh, Advent and the coming of Christ around the winter solstice, which is the darkest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, and basically to recognize that in the darkest times, that's when the light of the world came to save mankind. So that's all of that wonderful uh, stuff. But basically, in Advent, you're looking at the first coming of Christ, which is Christmas. You're looking at his present coming, so you're focusing on how he's present in our daily salvation, and then you're looking to his second coming. So it's this whole meditation on the process of coming. Um, so with that in mind, I've been reading a lot of Henry Nouwen's books about um, waiting, and he writes a lot about Advent too, and about how waiting is a fundamental spiritual practice. One of the biggest things, misconceptions I have about waiting is that when I wait for something, that there's nothing there. But the truth is, is when I've walked with the Lord, waiting is never nothing to something. It's always something to something more. And if I wrap my mind around that, it changes my whole mindset as far as what waiting looks like. And not only that, we forget, we act like we're the only ones waiting this whole time. But we're waiting, and God's waiting. And we're waiting, and God's waiting. And I think that it's so important for us to kind of start to branch those two together. So even with that in mind, I would like for us to even do um, a quick breath prayer. So just go ahead and close your eyes. And we're going to meditate on this um, on a phrase we hear often, which is, come, Lord Jesus, come. So you'll take a deep breath in, and you'll meditate on, come, Lord Jesus, and then you'll exhale, come. So I'll go ahead and facilitate us through it. We won't say it out loud, but just go ahead and breathe in. And breathe out. Breathe in. and breathe out. And you can open your eyes. All right, thank you. We have to wait for a lot of different things, and the waiting time frame is never perfectly defined. One of the things today, my daughter Junia, she's just sick, and she was just crying and crying and crying. and. Sometimes we look at patience as this passivity, this disconnection, but that's not actual patience if my daughter is crying because she's sick and I'm sort of disconnected, like, eh, eventually it'll turn out. It's okay. 
What patience and waiting actually looks like is being present and tending to things and taking care of things and doing what you can in that actual moment to attend to what's going on. You don't have control over it, but you do have, you are empowered by the Lord to tend to things. I think about that even with gardening, right? David Chu is one of the most patient people I know, and if you know him, he is so attentive to all these little details about gardening. I mean, Ening, his wife always tells me about how he Googles things about ladybugs and all that. But he can't control when his harvest comes, but it doesn't mean he's not tending to things. He's not attentive and persevering in that moment. Um, I think a lot of our misconceptions about waiting come from our misconceptions at the very beginning of the gospel. And might be kind of a profound statement, but I think about the way we treat the two women at the very beginning of the gospel, Elizabeth and Mary. And the way their stories are told is kind of like they're these docile, passive women who are like, oh, cool, I'm pregnant, be it as you will, Lord. <laughs> How much would that taint the way that we perceive waiting? How much would that make us distraught that the Lord sort of just came in and like was like, okay, now you're pregnant, and now, Mary, you might even be vulnerable to capital punishment, but, you know, be it as you will. I mean, I think it's really important for us to look at how they interacted. So let's just go to Luke 1, and I'll kind of jump around there. But basically, in Luke 1, 13... That's when the angel lets Zachariah know that, oh, your wife's going to be pregnant. You're going to have a child. And Zachariah didn't really know how to handle that. So the Lord silenced him because he couldn't handle it. <laughs> um, and what I think about is that in verses 24 through 25, it says, after these days, his wife, Zachariah's wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So Elizabeth was this incredibly educated woman. She was the daughter of a priest. Her husband was a priest. She was incredibly involved in her community, and she was doing great things. But cultural biases, it starts that whispering, well, if you were really blessed, you should have a quiver of arrows and a ton of kids, and you have none. And not only that, but as a woman, your whole purpose is to bear children. So what's even the point of your life if you haven't given your husband a lineage? And she's been persevering, and she's been faithful. She's been serving in the church, and she's been present and tending to things. And this is the woman that has chosen to walk through, not just like giving birth, right? It's to facilitate this whole process and this whole exchange that's the very beginning of our gospel. And then you look, and um, Mary in Luke 131 is told that she is also going to have a baby. And isn't it crazy that Elizabeth keeps herself hidden for five months, and then later in scripture it says that Mary goes to visit her cousin in the sixth month? So there's this whole converging that happens when these women recognize what's coming for them and what they're waiting for. And I also just want to point out, too, that 
Israel, culturally speaking, is in this context of, oh, the Lord's kind of been silent, so let's just look to the future. They're not actually doing the fullness of waiting and the coming of Christ. Because if you're really celebrating the coming, there's an understanding of remembering and being present in the things he did, being present in the things he's doing right now, and being present in the things to come. And Israel, a lot of people were not doing all three. But if they were doing one of the three, they were doing what's to come, what's to come, not at all present. And when I look at Mary in um, verse 54 and 55, when she's celebrating her pregnancy, she's saying, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. These women have such a different understanding. They are not passive. They are attentive. They are completely giving consent to the things that have happened in their life. If you really search through this, it's, it's such a different understanding of waiting. And not only that, they wait together. They come together. They affirm each other. And if you read their dialogue, they're coming together and thoughtfully unpacking what's happening. And I think about how fixated I am on the control of my life and the results that are to happen and how differently this is contrasted. Even in the life of Christ. A lot of times when I think about the life of Jesus, I think about his actions his healing, his preaching. He was extremely effective and successful in everything that he did. And I look a lot of time at his outcomes. And I never thought about it until recently that when he's praying in the garden before he's about to be crucified that he's saying, oh, if there's another way, Lord, please take this cup. And, you know, a lot of times people interpret that as he didn't want the cup of wrath. It was a lot to take on, so he was dialoguing with the Lord about that. I wonder, though, knowing the life of Jesus and his compassion, if he was also like, I am so effective in my ministry right now. There are so many people being healed. There are people who still need to be raised from the dead. There are still all these things that need to happen. Is there any other way you can do this where I can live and help people for a little bit longer? And I resonate with that because I'm so results-oriented. I think, like, what is the most effective way of doing X, Y, Z? And that is not necessarily a bad thing because so much of Jesus' life was spent doing that. But we always think about the things I can do to affect. I can do. I have control. I'll take over. And think about how much that is with even our culture. We live in a culture where we have a lot of control, a lot of power, a lot of influence. So I can do this. I can take care of it. And if I'm not able to do it or take care of it, God's not good. God's just leaving that girl on the street to be picked up by some exploitative person. One thing um, that really changed my perspective was the way that Henry Nouwen talks about not only what Jesus did, it's what Jesus had done to him his capacity for handing himself over. Because healing, preaching, the resurrection, they're all amazing things. Like, that is, that is the bedrock of our faith. But what was the moment in time when the most 
of his love was revealed. It's when he was having things done to him, when he wasn't in control, when he was being beaten and crucified, and then he says on the cross, it is finished, not like, I have achieved all of my goals. No, it is finished (laughs) because I have allowed this to be done to me, and I have been present this whole time. I'm not enduring abuse. I'm not just letting anybody do whatever they want to me. I have been present this whole time in knowing exactly what the Lord has called me to wait through, called me to endure. I'm not a victim. I am not apathetic. I'm just like, guess this hurts. How much longer? Right? It is so hard. So the way that Henry Nouwen explains it is, it's not just his actions, it's the passion. That that's are your two components of waiting, action and passion. And we can't have an effective way, effective <laughs> way of waiting without understanding the passion. Um, I also just, um, because we're, this is kind of for me, but because um, we're in a liturgical service, my great uncle, uh, his name was Uncle George, he passed away early this year. And he was the most joy-filled man you've ever met. Like his, oh, his funeral service, there were like these random refugee families who came in and like none of his kids had known all this stuff that he had done to just serve and care for people around him. And there was like this guy, even like in my uncle's last days when he was in incredible pain, he would like look for people who were kind of on the outs at his uh, church that he went to and invite them to lunch. And, um, you know, initially this guy said like, I was kind of like, well, I want to have lunch with this old man, but ended up, he was just sobbing at the funeral and you could tell that it was just such a life led, but um, he would always write me letters whenever I was living overseas. I lived overseas in Korea for uh, three years. And um, I was going through a really hard time because I had experienced quite a bit of death in my life. And I found one of his letters, and I just wanted to read part of it. Um, Losing a loved one can hurt, but it's not right for us to get over it. Dear Aaron, I have learned to embrace death. Look it in the eye put my arms around it and give it a tight hug until it looks the way that our dear Lord knew it to be. I love that image of death not being something that you just try to run away from or get away. But that he, and I feel like that's why he had so much joy in his life, is he just like took it and hugged it and crushed the life out of anything that was despair or hurtful, and he didn't do it by having this act of like trying to overcome all the time or get over it all the time, but to really like hold it with the depth of the love that Jesus had. So let's go back to our passage in Matthew. I always looked at this passage that the tragedy of the delayed master was that the master delayed. 
But the tragedy is actually that us who have been given charge to give food to people in the proper time, we weren't present. We were looking at something else. We were doing something else. And that lack of presence brings us further and further away from what the master charged us with initially. And the extreme of this is that we end up beating our fellow servants. But it starts when we start to remove our hearts from being present in whatever it is that we're waiting for. The real tragedy is when we just refuse to be present. And I thought about that too. If I refuse, if my heart was separated from my daughter today, like I have to prepare to wait. That's not what waiting looks like. The righteous servant believes that the master will return. The righteous servant understands that in this Advent season, in all seasons, there are three components to the waiting. Knowing that he's come, that he is present in his coming, and that he's coming again. And that is how we act as righteous servants. I want us to actually spend some time putting ourselves in the posture of the Israelites. Traditionally on Gaudete Sunday, you will read from a portion of Isaiah, and then we'll do another reading. But um, I wanted us to spend some time, and then the worship team's going to give us a moment to kind of reflect on the scripture from Isaiah. But remember that the Israelites during this time, there are people who are completely, they're, they're waiting for the Messiah to come. And there are so many things going on in their civilization that make it incredibly difficult for them to wait for his coming. So I'm going to go ahead and read that portion of Isaiah. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? and harden our hearts so we fear you not. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles, brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things that we did not look for you came down the mountains quaked at your presence from of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear no one has seen a god beside you who acts for those who wait for him you meet him joyfully works righteousness those who remember you in your ways behold you are angry and we sinned in our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment 
we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. 